Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything I talk about today at youarenotsosmart.com and you can learn more about both of my books and you can find some really cool merchandise. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com and if I bake and eat your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of You Are Now Less Dumb. Mmm cookies. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode... 16. So the question is, why is no one anywhere in the world telling you the truth and telling you to prepare. This film conclusively proves the existence of a secret network of FEMA camps now being expanded nationwide. It's only the beginning of the New World Order's hellish plan. Hidden power, secrets, cover-ups, corruption. You think you know the whole story? Think again. Our markings are all over. Take out a dollar out of your pocket. Look at the great seal of the United States. Take it out. If anybody still carries a dollar, they're not worth very much anymore, but look at the great seal. You'll notice in between the wingspan of the, e of the eagle, you will see the Star of David, made out of 13 stars. Now why is the Star of David there? Who do you believe was behind 9-11? Oh, I absolutely know. I have the police on CNN saying, get back, they're going to blow up seven. I have BBC reporting. No, who do you believe is behind I have the proof. I heard them on CBS who? radio. Oh, Alex. They announced they blew up the towers on CBS radio. Who do you believe? New Yorkers all saw it and heard it. Alex, who do you they believe? They blew up Building 7. Alex, who do you believe was behind it? The American government. Criminal elements of the military-industrial complex, the same ones that staged Gulf of Tonkin, mm. the same ones that staged Operation, right. the mass shootings of Operation right. Gladio. Right. Ooh, do you, the CIA do you don't like this ice, right ice. now. The BP oil spill was the biggest environmental disaster in history. It was a tragedy, all right. A real foul-up with lots of people to blame. But was it a conspiracy? I will tell you that I had a network... One of the big three, a network official actually tell me in the last two years, Glenn, 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 listen, we all know what's coming. This is a quote, but we have a responsibility not to tell the American people because they'll freak out. I've heard things that'll blow your mind. And now I think it's time you get the whole story. That was a very, very tiny sample of the world inhabited by Glenn Beck, Alex Jones, and Jesse Ventura. A place where nothing is for certain, where everything is a clue, a piece 
of a mystery, and just as you get close enough to snatch a glimpse of the cover-up, you realize you've only peeled back a layer of something that runs so deep that involves so many elements, something tied to so many people and places of power that no one can be trusted. Except the person who's smart enough and brave enough to take nothing at face value, like Glenn Beck, Alex Jones, and Jesse Ventura, who have who make a very good living at uh, at being this... Um, wait a second. What if Glenn Beck, Alex Jones, and Jesse Ventura are part of the conspiracy? What if they are just working for the Illuminati, or maybe the Raelians, or the Rothschild family, or the elders of Zion, or the Babylon Patriarch, or the Underground Reich, or the Real Society, or maybe... All of them work for the New World Order and are taking orders directly from Barack Obama's secret Kenyan base where he sends commands to number stations around the world to activate nodes in the high-frequency active auroral research program network to control the weather so we'll all stay inside and drink fluoridated water until we... Until we... Until we... Hmm. Well, we have to, we have to keep digging. We have to keep digging to find the truth because we don't really know why... They, they're doing all of this. I mean, they're trying to take over the world. They want all the power. They want to take. Uh, they want to take all of the um, the gold. The uh, hmm. anyway. The point is, it's a conspiracy. Obviously, it's a conspiracy. There's there's just too many clues, and you know when it comes to conspiracy theories, well, you are not so smart, and that's what we're going to talk about today, on the "You Are Not So Smart" podcast. My name is David McRaney, and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a new topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic before eating a cookie. This episode is about conspiracy theories. What are they? Why are they? Why aren't they so alluring? How can so many people believe in them? And how can so many people make so much money talking about them? It can seem like with the recent interest in the NSA and wiretapping coming out of long wars in a post 9-11 world with social media sucking up your personal information, that paranoia is at an all-time high. But it's not really so. It's just that our access to other people's states of mind, thanks to the internet, is at an all-time high. Conspiracy theories, they've always been part of the human condition. If you go back to the beginning of recorded history in, in America, I mean, the beginning of the European settlement, immediately you see conspiracy theories, and they really don't let up from then till now. That's Jesse Walker. He's the book editor at Reason Magazine. He wrote a book called The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. There may be times when it's a bit more intense, like right after 9-11 or something like that. But even at times of relative peace and prosperity, like the 1990s, you can have a ton of conspiracy theories uh, in play. In his book, Walker goes into painstaking detail showing that from well before the founding of the United States, all the way up until today, conspiracy theories have existed. And although he focuses on the USA, he makes the case that paranoia and conspiracy are default settings of the human mind that get inflamed during every single political movement, wherever people are moving politically, anywhere and any time that groups and cultures are working to establish who is in and who is out, who is enemy and who is friend, conspiratorial thinking will begin to foment and spread. That sort of thinking and the resulting behavior appears to be fundamental, according to Walker, like, like greed or sexual attraction or empathy or revenge. And as such, it has influenced everything in Walker's book, he sees the history of a people as also a history of their conspiracy theories, working as powerful driving forces for all sorts of things. The sort of fears that congeal around 
um, a, a new subculture or a new practice or what have you, um, will often take a conspiratorial turn. A, a recent example that I like to point to, because it's, it's recent enough that a lot of people remember it, but weird enough that people can feel removed from it, is the satanic panic of the 1980s, um, when uh, not just uh, people on the fringe who might have been saying such things in the 70s, but mainstream journalistic uh, organizations, uh, TV shows like 2020, um, people in the, the U.S. government, uh, juries who could send people to jail were taking seriously the idea that um, there was this vast network of satanic cults working behind the scenes, infiltrating daycares, uh, molesting children in rituals, uh, and, uh, you know, kidnapping people and killing them and then disposing of the bodies by perhaps cremating them. And that's why the police weren't able to find them. So this is, uh, this is something that was taken very seriously by the mainstream in the 80s. Nowadays, people look back at it as this sort of strange episode. Um, and when people talk like that, they are described in the sorts of terms we use when we talk about the fringe. But it wasn't a fringe phenomenon when it was going on. Walker sees conspiracy theories as a sort of folklore, shared storytelling. For instance, today in the United States, we all know about the JFK assassination conspiracy theories or the moon landing hoax conspiracy theories. And of course, other cultures have their own shared conspiracy theories as well, but so did previous eras. Walker compares it to animism, which is sort of a broad term describing many varied beliefs that natural forces like earthquakes and typhoons or birds and rocks are imbued with a sort of agency that some sort of life force is consciously affecting them. According to Walker, conspiracy thinking is seeing social forces as imbued with agency, and that helps make very large and complicated events and shifts in the political landscape easier to understand and form opinions over, even though that understanding is completely delusional. But thanks to that urge, Walker says conspiracy theories reveal the hidden anxieties driving behavior. You know, sometimes a conspiracy exists, and sometimes there's a conspiracy theory that is false but has elements of truth in it. Um, but even when a conspiracy theory doesn't have anything in it that's true about the object of the conspiracy theory, it says something true if it catches on about the anxieties and the experiences of the people who believe it. And it becomes this kind of funhouse mirror way of uh, looking at you know the way um, Americans of the past or present were seeing the world. Uh, I mean, one example, which is, uh, I mean, this always surprises people because it was such a strange thing for people to believe. But in the early 1940s, during World War II, it was fairly, there was a fairly widespread belief in the, among Southerners, white Southerners in the United States, um, that, uh, you know, black Southerners were in league with, you know, Hitler and or with the Japanese or in some versions with a conspiracy headed by Eleanor Roosevelt. And we're going to have, uh, you know, the South handed over to them. I mean, there was this idea of swastika clubs, um, you know, black Southerners in league with uh, the Nazi party, um, supposedly. And, you know, if Hitler won the war, they were going to be handed the South. And this was, on the one hand, it spoke to the anxieties that were going on in that place and time. Um, 
you know, whites afraid of uh, the people that uh, they were not treating well, who were below them on the social ladder, and also whites, uh, like, like most Americans, being afraid of uh, the, you know, the, not, the Nazis overseas, um, you know, we, that we were at war at with. But it was also an echo of earlier conspiracy theories, stories that had been told in the antebellum era about uh, the alleged conspiracies uh, plotting slave revolts, that perhaps some sort of outside force was uh, working behind the scenes to manipulate, often northern abolitionists, but sometimes something else, you know, land pirates or Mississippi gamblers or, or some other cabal. Walker says in his book that conspiracy theories can be categorized as either the enemy above, a conspiracy that forms at the top of the social pyramid, like thinking the U.S. government blew up the levees during Katrina and flooded New Orleans on purpose, or that Big Pharma has the cure for cancer but only wants to sell you the treatment. The enemy below, a conspiracy among the poor or the working class or native peoples or servants or slaves, often emerging as rumors of revolt or riot or overthrow. The enemy within, a conspiracy among people in your own group, amid neighbors, infiltrators, spies, imposters, and as in Salem, witches and warlocks. The benevolent and malevolent conspiracy, which rounds out the group, is a sort of like a Matrix-ish, Inception-like conspiracy, that the real world is an illusion, that history is being guided by secret cabals, maybe even aliens or extra-dimensional beings or gods, and uh, that the world maybe is a simulation or an experiment or something like that. But what I want you to notice is that people who can't stop digging into the supposed conspiracy, who become obsessed with all the ins and outs of it, often those people don't seem as if they would be all that upset if the conspiracy theory turned out to be true. In fact, if the theory turned out to be false, it seems like they would be really bummed out. And curiously, the conspiracy they believe in tends to line up with their existing worldview. For instance, people who believe that Barack Obama's birth certificate is a forgery probably also did not vote for him. You know, if you went to a birther convention in 2009, one thing you almost certainly wouldn't hear anyone say is, I strongly support Obama's ideas about health care reform. It's just too <laughs> bad he's ineligible to be president. I highly recommend you grab Jesse's book, The United States of Paranoia, Conspiracy Theory. As he says, conspiracy theories have always been and always will be. From that perspective, you can imagine a future book that will look back on the weirdness of conspiracy thinking surrounding FEMA camps and Common Core and death panels and genetically modified food and the Boston Marathon bombing and, oh my God, the Sandy Hook shooting and so on and so on and so on. And comparing that to whatever weird conspiracies people with AI companions and robot gardeners and spaceships and enhanced bodies and augmented eye implants will be cooking up whenever that future book comes out. But I hope you're asking the same thing that I'm asking at this point. Why do we do this? What is happening in our brains? What are the psychological mechanisms leading us to th this kind of thinking and behavior? Now, to help answer those questions, our guest this episode is neurologist and leading the skeptic movement, Stephen Novella. Now, before I bring Stephen on, I want to introduce you to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code PIPE. P-I-P-E. Now, Squarespace, I love having them as a sponsor because... I use Squarespace. I've used them for a while now, and I've used them in projects and also my placeholder for my name on the internet, davidmcraney.com. I use Squarespace because I wanted I wanted something that I knew would just work, but I also wanted it to be nice looking. I wanted it to be simple 
and easy to use. And when I, uh, when I need to update it very quickly, like when I just done something recently on the interview or something like that, and I want to put it on that website or I need new contact info, it's just boom, boom, boom. And it's immediately there. As soon as I uh, press save, it appears that way on the internet, exactly the way I want it to look. I love it. So if you're new to doing things like that, they have more than 20 beautiful, well-made designs, customizable templates for you to choose from. Those templates have allowed them to win numerous design awards from institutions like the Webby's and FWA, Forbes, and they're easy to use. And since I, like the support is 24-7, you're going to get what you want. And if you're already good with things like uh, coding or Photoshop or design, you can use Squarespace to greatly magnify what it is that you do, how you can create things that are really great. Look through their examples on their website and you'll see people using Squarespace to do amazing things. So I want you to know that you can go there and start at just $8 a month. And that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content looks great on any device, tablet, smartphone, PC, laptop, whatever. And you can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website. Now, when you des- when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code PIPE, P-I-P-E, to get 10% off, and that will show your support for the You Are Not So Smart podcast. We thank Squarespace for their support, and their tagline, it's true, Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. So our guest, Stephen Novella, hmm, Stephen is one of those people who, no matter how you want to go about it, he will always have an impressive introduction. He is the host and producer of one of the most popular science and rationality podcasts in the world, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He is the co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society. He is the director of science-based medicine at the James Randi Foundation. He is a fellow at the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. He blogs at Neurologica, Skeptic Blog, and science-based medicine. And on top of all of that, he is a clinical neurologist at the Yale University School of Medicine. So I can't think of any brain I would rather pick on the subject of why we succumb to conspiracy theories than the one in Stephen's head. So let's hear what he has to say. Okay, Stephen Novella. Um, I think... A lot of people would, uh, since you are an expert on conspiracy thinking and conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, what they would like to know um, from your area of expertise, are Glenn Beck, Jesse Ventura, and Alex Jones involved in some sort of conspiracy to protect us from learning that the reptilians used thermite paint to take down the Twin Towers on 9-11? Are you asking if the conspiracy theorists are like a false flag operation? Right. Are they some sort of uh, operation to keep us from the real, real, real truth? Uh, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, let me say that. So, I mean, basically, no. I mean, they're obviously, they're not deliberately engaged in any kind of deliberate deception or misdirection to discredit conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories so that we don't notice the real things. But I do say that. You know, if your interest is being a watchdog on government to uh, prevent government excess or corporate excess or whatever, weaving bizarre conspiracy theories is not the way to go about doing it. You're you're not doing your job, and if anything, you're in fact providing cover. If there if there is anything nefarious going on, so 
I do think that it does distract from the legitimate job of being a watchdog on, you know, the powers that be. Well, you know, a lot of people who I think watch those shows, they think of themselves as being like, they, they believe that they are critical thinkers and that those shows make them critical thinkers. So um, from your perspective, what is going on there in a person's mind who thinks that, okay, well, I am being skeptical. I'm watching and listening to people who are questioning everything. Yeah, it's, uh, it's cynicism, really. It's not skepticism. Just blanket disbelieving everything any authority tells you is not critical thinking. That's not skepticism. That's being a contrarian, you know. So, they, But it, it, I do in, frequently encounter people who think that just being a contrarian and just disbelieving everything makes you a skeptic, and it's not that easy. Being a skeptic, being a skeptic means separating what's likely to be true from what's likely not to be true by using some kind of process of evaluating logic, evaluating evidence, trying to step back and look at your own thought process, what we call metacognition, thinking about your own thought processes. It's not just a blanket, oh, I don't believe anything, everyone's lying. That's just naked cynicism, which... It's kind of a cheap way to imitate skepticism, but it's not skepticism. Mm. Okay, so I, I just looked at the recent Gallup poll, um, and it uh, there was a right around the time of the um, anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, they brought out the uh, latest research by Gallup, and they said that in 1963, um, 20, 29% of Americans believe one man was responsible for the JFK shooting, and 52% believe that there was a conspiracy. In 1976, um, that belief in a conspiracy theory went to 81% of the population, and then today, most recently in 2013, it's at 61%. So, um, and there were a lot of uh, articles about that. From um, From your perspective, what is going on here? Why is this conspiracy theory is so um, popular and prevalent and um, even after all these years. Yeah, I mean, JFK is an iconic figure in American history, and I think that that assassination had a huge impact on the American psyche. So it's not surprising that people are still interested in it, still talking about it and speculating about it. It was a very complicated historical event, and there's a lot of things that that happened that might superficially make someone wonder, you know, could one person really uh, get that close to the president and and take him out? And, um, you know, the the assassination of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby can superficially be made to seem like a silencing. Um, And... So, you know, it's a big historical event and people assume that a big event must have had a big cause. There's a disconnect in our mind. The idea that one lone nut took out the most powerful person in the world and all the ramifications that flowed from that and yet it, it, there was no one else involved seems incongruent. So, but that's again, that's just our gut feeling. You have to step back from that and look at the actual facts. And when you do that, you know, it becomes obvious, becomes evident that all of the physical evidence points to one shooter in the sniper's nest in that book depository. And the only person that really was in the right place at the right time was Lee Harvey Oswald. He, he clearly his behavior was clearly guilty. I mean, he fled the scene. He killed a police officer who, that, that he encountered, you know, who just approached him for questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so and despite. The all of the conspiracy theories and 
you know, 50 years of speculate of, of investigating, no one's been able to find any real evidence of an actual conspiracy. All they find are anomalies. They do what we call anomaly hunting, where, um, you know, if they find something that seems unusual, then that becomes evidence of a conspiracy, not they don't know what conspiracy, just something's off here. Something's not right. Uh, but, you know, if you take a deep dive into any historical event, you're going to find weird stuff, weird coincidences, people acting in a way that you can't fully explain because you don't tend to have all of the all of the information about what situation they were in. You could make a conspiracy out of anything. So well, how would you define a conspiracy theory? What are sort of the moving parts of your typical conspiracy theory? What separates it from other types of um, delusional thinking? Uh, well, when you're asking that question, you're really asking about a, what we call a grand conspiracy theory. There are obviously small conspiracies. You know, three people in a boardroom can certainly concoct a conspiracy to defraud their competition, for example, or mm-hmm. or whatever. But a grand conspiracy involves uh, many people having to deceive the media, the government, you know, large organizations, uh, or um, either on a, a huge scale or over a long period of time. Uh, grand conspiracies are inherently implausible because they tend to collapse under their own weight. Just, you know, you, you have to make them bigger and bigger and bigger uh, in order to explain away, like, hmm, why isn't the media exposing the flaws in the standard story about 9-11. Well, they must be in on it, too. So they just, you know, massively increase the size of the conspiracy. Uh, the, the structure of a conspiracy essentially divides the world into three kinds of people. There are the people who commit the conspiracy, the conspirators. They uh, generally are perceived of as being incredibly evil, cartoon, you know, mustache-twirling evil. They have amazing resources and can concoct these fabulously complicated plans. But at the same time, they're incredibly naive and stupid because they have to be in order to expose themselves to, to some extent. And then there's the, um, the army of light, right? The people who can, see the, the, who can see the conspiracy for what it is that are trying to save the world from the evil uh, conspirators. And then there's the vast majority of everybody else who are the dupes, the sheeple, right? Every, everyone else in the world. So that's the, that's the world according to the conspiracy theorist. They're in the army of light. They've seen the conspiracy and everyone else is too stupid to say it. So, um, and you mentioned this earlier. Um, what is... What's strange about this to me is that um, it seems to be part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be just sort of part of the way we're naturally built to think about things. And there can be uh, certain triggers in the environment can cause a, a person who would normally consider themselves to be rational to start to kind of fall into this sort of thinking. Is that, Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all have a little conspiracy theorist living inside of us, right? We all tend to be a little paranoid to think, hmm, how could these things fit together? Is this all just a coincidence? We don't, we inherently don't like coincidences, apparent patterns. They speak to us. They, they, they emotionally respond by saying, oh, there's, that's something real there. We don't like you know, dismissing apparent patterns as just coincidence or illusion. And so we look for the hidden hand, the, the, the meaning, you know, and when you're trying to connect events and uh, explain apparently disconnected events or apparent anomalies by saying, well, that's because there's this malevolent 
uh, intelligence behind it all who's controlling everything, that's a conspiracy theory. So it's a form of pattern recognition in order to generate a narrative um, that makes sense of a, compl- a complex world. And, you know, you could make... Um, I hate to resort to hand-waving sort of neuropsychological arguments, but it certainly makes sense that we would um, have some tendency to look out for ourselves, to be on the lookout for people conspiring against our interests. Um, you know, but we, we evolved, of course, in small tribes, you know, where like, you know, a couple people could be banding up against us. But now that same um, mental hardwiring exists in a worldwide complicated civilization, but we apply sort of the same pattern recognition and saying, oh, there's, there are, the forces are conspiring against me, but these forces are now governments or mm-hmm. institutions. You know, it's generational. It's not just a, a few people who live near me. And it always seems to me that it's like um, conspiracy theories are, are projected toward things that are just very complicated to understand. And it like takes something that's this thing that has lots of moving parts is very complicated. There's more to it than uh, there are more people involved than you could ever meet and talk to. And then it turns it into something really, really, really simple. You know, like the uh, it's like taking something very complex and making it super simple and easy to pick apart in some way. Yeah, I mean, partly it's uh, a desire for simplicity and understanding. I'm going to make sense of this wide array of events and factoids by saying it's everything is created by the conspiracy. Any evidence that's there that was put there by the conspirators, any evidence that's missing that was hidden by the conspirators. And so there's no once you're inside that that mental framework, there's no way out. It's a self-contained belief system. No evidence can convince you that the conspiracy is not true because that was just planted. Uh, right. So like when the, the uh, moon hoax conspiracy theory, pulling off the, a hoax to fake going to the moon was actually more complicated than just going to the moon. <laughs> right. Uh, but and every, every time we come up with more evidence, oh, look, we have a satellite now in low moon orbit. That's taking pictures of the Apollo 11 landing site, and you could see the footprints of the astronauts. I mean, it's smoking gun evidence (laughs) that we were there, that people were walking around on the moon. Well, NASA must have faked it. Oh, there you go. So there's no nothing we could do, you know, unless we, even if we took that person to the moon and put them at the Apollo 11 site, they could say, oh, they just mocked this up for me. I mean, there's just no evidence that could possibly get them out of the mindset um, because any, any evidence could have been faked, right? Is it, does, this, um, does, this fr- does this frustrate you? Because I imagine that you have had to deal with a, a lot of people who are very, who have become very good at insulating um, and defending themselves from uh, a, any sort of evidence attack. Is this something that really frustrates you as, as, a, uh, as a leader in the skeptic uh, community? I mean, it fascinates me. I try not to be frustrated. If, if that sort of thing frustrates you, then you're in the wrong business because that's just that's day to day. I mean, obviously, I can't help but be frustrated at some points in time, but I just always have to step back and say, this, what I'm interested in here is what, what's going on in people's minds, their thought process that leads them to this point. How can I deconstruct their thought processes and, and figure out exactly where they're going wrong? And then can I figure out a way to explain that to them? And if not, why? What, 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 what escape hatch are they using to get away from logic and evidence? So by just you know, taking a, a sort of an academic view of it, I try to remove myself emotionally from the, what would otherwise be an extremely 
you know, on a personal level can be extremely, extremely frustrating, but you just you can't let it get to you. Otherwise, you know, you'll go crazy. It's like letting the trolls get to you online. Right, if, if that's right. if that happens and you just get offline, you just don't engage in social media if you're going to let trolls get under your skin. <laughs> um, for me personally, the thing that was most uh, frustrating and bizarre was right after Sandy Hook. Because, um, mm-hmm. like, I think we all, uh, anyone who is into this world of, um, of, uh, hoaxes and uh and um delusional thinking you'll you're you're pretty familiar with things like the illuminati and chemtrails and Mm -hmm. the moonland jfk um drug companies oil companies all that kind of stuff but then out of nowhere comes this event um and if anyone doesn't remember it was uh a a young man went into a school he shot 20 students uh six staff members and right afterwards it was almost it was like within hours um this conspiracy theory community started to blossom online and, mm-hmm. and say that it was something created by the government to encourage uh, gun control. Um, right. That worked really well, didn't it? <laughs> right. So what, um, it, is there something that we could do? For, uh, do, you, do you think that we could either prevent or prepare for this sort of uh, thinking and behavior? I think so. I mean, I do think that we have to be aware that around any big emotional in the media event like that, there's going to be a community of people who are going to try to create a conspiracy around it. And I think there are things that we can do as a society to maybe at least mitigate that. I do want to say, though, about Sandy Hook, you know, I, um, I live in Connecticut. I have family who live in Sandy Hook. And I oh, personally wow. I personally know people who were at the school during the shooting or were among the first responders so I guess I'm part of the conspiracy, too, because, you know, I, I'm one step removed from people who were actually there. The notion that this was all staged or faked is ridiculous. I mean, now that you have a conspiracy that would have to involve an entire community, mm-hmm. how could a community not know if 27 people who live in their community were killed or not, if these families were fake? I mean, there's, how that's, doesn't, that one boggles my mind. How could you, if you think through it for even a minute, it, it just cannot, cannot be. It makes absolutely no sense. But what they're looking for are, again, the anomalies. Oh, the police found some guy walking through the woods and they, uh, they took him for questioning and put him in the car and then they let him go 15 minutes later. Well, who was he? Well, the fact that you don't know who that guy was doesn't mean that he's part of some conspiracy. Turns out he was an off-duty cop. They questioned him. He flashed his bag, badge and they let him go. He checked out. You know, they were checking out anybody who was in the area. But he would never think, oh, maybe that guy was an off-duty cop. But weird things like that happen. Just, that's just the nature of reality. And that's what, you know, your inability to explain exactly every little thing that happened doesn't mean that it's, it's there for a conspiracy. It means you just don't have enough information to make perfect sense of every tiny little detail. Um, but getting back to like, what can we do to, to maybe mitigate these situations blossoming, I do think we need to um, document the facts on the ground very carefully with an eye towards the fact that you know someone's going to try to distort this into something that it isn't. And I do think that we really need to weigh the, the conspiracy angle when deciding um, how transparent to make events. Um, so, for example, like the decision to uh, when the, when the U.S. government found and killed bin Laden, mm-hmm. and they decided, all right, we're just gonna we're gonna you know kill him on sight, get rid of the body, not show any video, you know, not let this turn into anything. 
um, like an internet, you know, minimize its, you know, propaganda purposes internationally, et cetera. But at the same time, by playing it all close to the vest like that, you know, it looks like they have something to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't believe there's any conspiracy about that, but I mean, they, they, they had to balance those, those various factors. Um, so I think, you know, the government uh, and media have to think about, you know, I, I think we should err more on the side of being transparent and, uh, and storing and saving evidence, even though it might not legally be necessary. I think just for historical purposes, you know, having original evidence available for independent review is, does go a long way, I do think, to at least marginalize the conspiracy theorists. Like, for example, with 9-11, I do think that the um, skeptical analysis and deconstruction of the conspiracy theorists really helped to marginalize them over the years. They're never going to go away. They're always going to be there on the fringe. But I do think it re- it, it reduced the size of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it it's 9-11 is one thing, and it's incredible and strange that people are still um, pumping effort into that conspiracy theory. But in Sandy Hook, people were calling the... Um, the parents they were harass- mm-hmm. harassing parents saying that they're ch- that they were actors it was one of the most infuriating and bizarre things i've ever seen whenever it comes to this uh you know human behavior on a mass scale so i would hope that um that someone out there is is uh consulting with um people in positions that could maybe mitigate that sort of stuff because it is obviously a human behavior that i think is going to happen again somewhere along the line yeah, absolutely. You know, and it could be very upsetting and very destructive. Um, and and again, you could be motivated to sort of isolate those families, which I think you know, they deserve their privacy. But then, of course, any attempt at isolating them for their privacy then fuels more conspiracy theories. So wow. it's a bit of a catch twenty two, right? You know, um, and almost either way, you kind of fuel the conspiracy theorists because they'll take silence as an admission to talking about it as. A, a diversion, you know, whatever you do or don't do, they'll spin that into, see, that supports the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't win in a way, but I do think that um, the one thing that, that governments shouldn't do is just default to their hide everything sort of reaction to, you know, to keep everything hidden is, is kind of the, the, just the natural instinct. Um, and I think that they need to um, think about that carefully, you know, when, and, and be as transparent as they can be, uh, to at least you know minimize the fodder for the conspiracy theorists. Is conspiracy theories are such a fascinating thing about the human mind because um, I'm reminded of um, you know ant spirals, the ant death spirals, where the mm-hmm. uh, where ants get into a, a um, sort of a feedback loop where they can't stop themselves from going round and round and round. Um, it always conjures up that image in me in my mind because it's like. Um, the several of the elements of uh, the way we can, you know, make sense of the world and the, and the way that we um, try to logically go about uh, disassembling experience can get us caught in this weird loop that's almost inescapable. Um, how would you recommend that if you're one on one with someone who is deeply invested in conspiracy theory, what would be the best way do you think to proceed to try to try to knock them out of that loop? Oh, I don't have any magical solution to that. I don't think that there's any formula or any single approach that works because of exactly what you're saying. I, I like the analogy of the ant death spiral. Uh, you know, pe- we like to think of ourselves as um, like 
completely free thinkers, but in fact, you know, we, we are following algorithms just like ants are, just our mental algorithms are a lot more sophisticated and complicated. The, the solution is that you have to get out of that algorithm. That's, again, the metacognition. You have to think about your own thought processes, um, and, you know, as much as you can, you know, and, and even thinking about the way that you think about your thought processes. Um, because, you know, we're just otherwise that we, we tend to default back to our biases and our mental pathways of least resistance. Um, so when people are stuck in, a, in an isolated belief system like that, a, a closed off belief, belief system, there is no way to get through to them by definition. Um, all you can do is, is just be, you know, persistently try to get them to think, you know, about that very fact itself. Try, you know, I try to get them to think about the way they're approaching the evidence, the fact that they're not being open to the outside and it'll either resonate with them or it won't. You'll, you'll get through or you won't. I, and I have gone through to people, um, although not, not, uh, usually one-on-one, but, you know, like through my podcast, but that's because, you know, I get to talk to tens of thousands of people at once. And so when you, when you're dealing with those kind of numbers, yeah, people email me and will, and will say that, you know, they did, um, come out of that way of thinking over time. Like eventually we sort of broke through, we cracked through, but the probability of doing that on any individual is statistically remote. I mean, you know, belief systems are very good at protecting themselves. Wow. Um, thank you. That's really cool. The um, I, We're sort of running out of time here, and I want to get in a, a few of these questions from uh, from Facebook. I, I told people on Facebook that you would be a guest on the show, and there was a, there were a lot of people that wanted to ask you different things, so I grabbed a couple of them. Um, this one comes from Steve Corey, and he asks, have there been any – have there uh, been conspiracy theories that at one time were dismissed as being part of the fringe that were later discovered to be true? And if so, does this play into the hands of conspiracy theorists who are then able to say, see, you never know? Uh, no. I mean, we get that question a lot, and the answer is no, there are no grand conspiracies that were on the fringe because they were highly implausible that then turned out to be true. There certainly have been – government and corporate conspiracies in, in at the uh, the moderate level conspiracies the corporate boardroom conspiracy for example um, sure we, we those historically exist I mean, we, we never doubt that the confusion is you know between the grand implausible cons- uh, conspiracies and the more small-scale mundane conspiracies nothing no grand conspiracy has ever turned out you know despite the odds to, to end up being true okay um- and we, we sort of touched on a couple of these things earlier, uh, but Brad Clark asks, in a world that seems rife with hidden agendas of politicians and corporations, how do you define the line between a conspiracy theory and healthy skepticism and distrust of mainstream information? Yeah, again, that's gets back to what I was saying. Um, and again, this isn't, I don't want to create the false dichotomy that there's two completely different types of conspiracy. It is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. You would say, at what point does a conspiracy become implausible? I just think you have to evaluate every claim on its own merits. What is the evidence? What's the plausibility here? Um, you know, is the thought process valid or are people just weaving conspiracy theories out of anomalies and, and ignorance? Um, so again, there's, there's, it's, it's the general critical thinking, skeptical metacognition formula, you know, just applied in this specific area to conspiracies. It's like saying, you know, what's the line between science and pseudoscience? Well, okay, there's, that's a long conversation about all the little things that make science valid versus invalid. Um, so just, there's no 
there's no way around just doing a detailed evaluation of any individual conspiracy claim. Uh-huh. Great. Um, so Bill Heidenreich asks um, in this, I'm going to sort of paraphrase this. He's saying that um, he cannot decide who to believe when it comes to uh, the debate over climate change because he hears from one side that there are conspiracies afoot trying to convince you that climate change is real when it's not. Um, if you don't have a lot of scientific knowledge, you're not. You're just a. You're very much a layperson. What's the best way to make heads or tails of something like that? Yeah, that's really tricky uh, because you need you need some kind of scientific literacy, scientific understanding, even if it's just broadly about how science work, how the institutions of science work. If it's all a mystery to you, then yeah, you just have one group of people saying one thing, another group of people saying another thing. Um, the evaluation comes when you know like how the process of science works and you could say, all right, you know, the, the consensus of scientific opinion among published, you know, peer-reviewed uh, legitimate research is all pointing in this one direction and, and their arguments all hold up. Whereas, you know, the, the uh, global warming is all a big conspiracy side of things. When you actually take any individual argument of theirs and, and drill down, it evaporates eventually. You know, eventually if you drill down deep enough, you realize that it, it, it was made up. It's just not valid. It's not a correct argument. And they actually don't have the consensus or or um, the weight of opinion on their side, you end up you realize that it's the same you know few people who are generating all of the anti you know, global warming um, opinions. Uh, so you know, it, but the, there you, you require some level, I think, of, of scientific literacy in order to make sense of it, um, right? If you if you don't if you can't tell like a valid scientific argument from an invalid scientific argument. I don't know how you could separate those two things. Mm, okay. So more science education is required here. Yeah. Uh, we need a scientifically literate public in order to participate in a democracy in the 21st century when we have to you know, make decisions about things like, should we be vaccinating all of our kids? You know, should, should we be doing something about global warming before it's too late, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, one last question. This is from Tandy Bird, and she wanted to know, um, are there certain traits that you've seen that seem to make a particular kind of person more susceptible to belief in conspiracy theories? Well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I don't like to be an armchair psychiatrist, you know what I mean? So I try not to, like, analyze people's psychology um, just from casual, non-clinical interaction. But it is certainly recognized that there are some people have more of a tendency to be paranoid, to have what we call paranoid ideation. Um, and it's been studied. In fact, people who tend to, um, who b- tend to believe in conspiracies are also more likely to see patterns in random visual images as well, which is mm. really interesting. They might have this enhanced pattern recognition or they may just have a, a decreased uh, sort of reality testing filter, meaning that they're much more likely to think that patterns that they think they see are real. Um, so I think that's, but again, we all have that tendency to some degree. These just may be people who are farther along that spectrum. They're a little bit more paranoid, more, you know, uh, more intense pattern recognition, and they're less skeptical of their own, their own uh, perceived patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, 
people who fall into this line of thinking, it's it's not stupidity. They're, they're not dumb. They're, they're very no, they're often very intelligent. You know, they're very good. I mean, uh, ironically, people who are highly intelligent are a lot better at rationalizing their own beliefs. Um, so they, they're much more sophisticated in, in locking themselves into the beliefs that they want to hold. It's So in raw intelligence isn't enough. You really need critical thinking skills. You have to be able to get outside of yourself and think about your own thought process. Um, uh, so otherwise, it doesn't matter you know, how much you know, your factual knowledge, your memory, you know, other measures of intelligence actually work against you in that they will make it you know, they'll give you the tools to lock yourself into whatever belief system that you want. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, all right, well, uh, we're out of time, so I want to give people a chance. I know that people are going to hear this and they're going to want to find out how can they keep up with you. Uh, where can people find you out there in the Internet and stuff? So my podcast is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. So if you go to theskepticsguide.org, then you'll you'll get to our website. You can find The Skeptic's Guide on iTunes. Um, I also blog at Science-Based Medicine and Neurological Blog. Searching on any of those terms will get you to my stuff. And what what sort of projects are you guys working on? What's What's coming up in the future for you? Uh, well, our future project is we're trying to really develop the video end of our content creation. We've made some videos in the past. We're in the in the post production phase of a mini of a small web series that we that we finished filming over the summer. But we're really hoping to continue to move in that direction to make um, science and skeptically themed like YouTube and web videos. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, David. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And man, I am so proud to be part of that family. And every couple of days, it seems like they're putting out another great podcast or another podcast is joining that family. One of the latest ones is Incredibly Interesting Authors. And this is hosted by Mark Fraunfelder. And he interviews Incredibly Interesting Authors. The last episode is one that I think you want to listen to. It's uh, Alex Stone author of Fooling Houdini. And this book, it's about uh, a guy who tried to be a magician, gave up on it, and then came back to it after getting a degree in physics. And the book, it reveals the psychology of deception and the limits of human perception. So I think you should check this out. It's called Incredibly Interesting Authors. You can find it at boingboing.net. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for Cookie. That's good enough for me. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. All right. So today's recipe comes from Hal Sandbach, who sent this recipe for turtle cookies. And although the name is very simple, these are very complicated cookies. Um, Full disclosure, my wife, Amanda McCraney, makes the cookies for every episode. And she loves making the cookies. And we love the cookie making process. We love doing it together. And um, although I don't help that much. And uh, she said that these were absolutely the most complicated uh, she'd ever 
done, but also the most fun she had had making cookies. And let me tell you what's in these things, okay? Flour, cocoa powder, salt, butter, sugar, egg, milk, and all the other stuff. Vanilla, uh, caramel, heavy cream, semi-sweet chocolate, shortening. But what makes them crazy is that you have to, with an electric mixer, beat them all up, then wrap the dough and refrigerate it for an hour. Then you have to whisk egg whites in a bowl and put pecans in it and uh, make a little indentation in the dough ball and bake it. And then uh, there's so many steps. Then you have to like make caramel and you have to drizzle chocolate. They're crazy, okay? These things are crazy. But I can say that this is one very attractive cookie. Oh boy, this cookie looks amazing. It looks like something out of uh, a fine chocolatier shop that you might find at the boardwalk in Sydney, Australia. Mm. And I'm going to try this thing live for the first time. I have not pre-tried this t- this cookie, and uh, here we go. I am circumnavigating the ocean of bliss thanks to the passport of the turtle cookie sent in by Hal Sandbach. You've given me permission and the ability to sail into an orgasmic ocean of pure caramel chocolate turtle cookie bliss. Let's take another bite. This cookie makes me evil laugh. <laughs> I love it. Mm. 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 Hal Sandbach, you deserve a firm handshake. Seriously, thank you. Um, that is going to allow me to read this self-delusion news. So this study comes from Oxford University. This is a press release from Oxford University that says one in, one out. Oxford study shows people limit social networks. It was put out January 7th, 2014. And the gist of it is that despite the way that mobile technologies and social networking sites have made it easier to stay in touch with large numbers of acquaintances, this study shows that people still put most of their efforts into communicating with a small group of people and you often operate on an unconscious level at doing a one in one out thing. Uh, it's almost like a policy of the brain so that communication patterns remain the same, even when your friendships change. Um, although social media greatly expands our ability to stay in touch with people and keep up with many, many different people in the real world, we can't actually maintain those sorts of relationships, not really meaningful ones with more than a very small number of people. You may have heard of this before. It's called Dunbar's number. Uh, there's plenty of evidence for it. Anthropologist Robin Dunbar first proposed the idea and he, and he proposed it because he had discovered a correlation uh, between brain sizes and social groups. So the larger the brain of a primate, the more members of its social group it could keep up with. Dunbar saw this and he came up with this number after doing a lot of research. And it, it looks like for the number, the human beings limit the number of people they can keep up with to about 150. And for close friends, you keep that to uh, people you keep up with daily. That number drops to about 20. And this became a popular subject after social media allowed people to have these giant friend groups of 5,000 people. 
know, a thousand people or whatever, or all these people are following you on Twitter or you have them on, on Facebook. But the research suggests that there's no way you could keep you could keep up with that many people. So, um, but primates survive by being social and that requires a lot of brain power. So the hypothesis goes that you sam- you simply can't keep up with the lives, jobs, relationships, wants, needs, fears, hopes, favors, and slights of more than about 150 people any given time. Now, this new research adds to the evidence for this idea by proposing that when you add a new friend, you basically delete an old one from your circle, as if you only have enough working memory to hold a certain number of people in your uh, mindscape at any time. The research uh, in the research, the actual paper is called The Persistence of Social Signatures in Human Communication. It was conducted by um, Dr. Reed Sochas. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sorry. Mr. Robin Dunbar. And from the University of Oxford, uh, Sam Roberts and um, Jerry Saramaki. Uh, not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sorry. And the research spans across the UK, Finland, uh, the United States, and so on. It's um, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And it combines all this data together. Where What they did basically is they ranked people's uh, social group by who is the most important friend and family member and who's the second and third and fourth and all that. And they monitored people's phone calls and they discovered that people tended to only really talk on the phone with these people who are ranked in that small circle of really close friends, um, no matter what changed in their lives as they, as they went from high school to college, as they went from job to job, uh, they were constantly changing a pool of acquaintances, but the small group of friends did not change. But the, uh, the interesting part of this is that, and I'm reading straight from the press release, is that the researchers discovered that even though participants' relationships changed as they made new friends during the intense transition period between school and university or work, individual social signatures remained stable. Participants continued to make the same number of calls to people according to how they ranked for emotional closeness, although the actual people in their social networks and or their rankings changed over time. And so then it goes on to say that this is more evidence for Dunbar's number and, uh, the most interesting part of the research was that as uh, that list of people that you keep up with is not stable if you add more people to your um, friend group. That that small group of people that you keep up with on a daily basis, uh, it's stable until you add someone who goes into that high-ranking position of someone that you're going to, you're going to keep up with, uh, if not every day, on a week-to-week basis. So... New research adding more evidence to the fact that, um, or to the hypothesis that Dunbar's number is a real thing and you can only really keep up with about 150 people total and about 20 people in your close friend group. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are provided by Drew Garraway. And if you want to find more great podcasts, go to boingboing.net. Also, head over to the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page where I tell you who's going to be on the show uh, in the next episode or two, and you can ask questions of the guests, and then I'll ask those questions of the guests. Thanks again to Squarespace, our new sponsor, and please do go over to youarenotsosmart.com and check out the merchandise we have there and the books and peruse all the podcasts that came before this one.